All right, good morning again. Here we are before the Word of God. We are going to settle down with a word of prayer and pick up where we left off. Now, Father God, as we again consider these beautiful words of wisdom for husband and wife, sometimes hard to hear, Lord, and the subject brings up all kinds of things in our hearts. And we pray, Father God, for eyes that can see, ears that can hear, and a heart that can understand. Give us courage, Lord, to hear the things that um, will bring uh, resolve and healing and to make our marriages everything you designed them to be. In your name we pray, amen. The story is told, speaking of marriage. Winston Churchill, uh, uh, Britain's prime minister there for a couple of terms back in the 1940s, uh, there was this woman who served in parliament, and uh, she really disliked him, and the feeling was mutual. Uh, in fact, the two uh, were famous for their sharp, bitter disputes. And one day she said, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, my dear prime minister, if I were your wife, I'd be tempted to poison your tea. To which he responded, my dear lady, if I were your husband, I'd be tempted to drink it. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> and the reason it's so funny, in a macabre kind of way, is it touches upon the desperation that one might feel if stuck in a bad marriage where disagreement and bickering, frustration, and offenses abound. And if we're honest, at some level, every marriage has its fair share of struggle and strife. And God knows that for sure. And that's why he's given us words of wisdom for husbands and wives. Uh, here in First Peter and other famous, well-known uh, passages like Ephesians chapter 5, for sure, marriage is God's idea. Uh, he designed it to complete us, to bless us, to make us all that he intends us to be. And so, as it says it there in the beginning, uh, Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God says, uh, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable uh, for him. So she was designed to bless him, to help him, to complete him. Proverbs 31, she brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. And he was also designed in the same way for her to lead, to be the head of the union, uh, responsible for the well-being of the marriage, to serve her and serve God, accountable to him. Uh, he's the one responsible to provide and protect and to make that marriage everything God wants it to be. So in many ways, I wouldn't say that marriage is uh, a calling. It's a ministry that he calls you to if you're married. The husband's ministry is to care for that wife, and the wife's ministry and calling from God is to care for her husband. And so many times we don't understand that. So we, we're in a marriage and we're thinking all about ourselves instead of the primary calling on your life is to be thinking about her 
and how you contribute to any possible conflict or strife. Because really, uh, if we have an other-centered attitude, uh, that is the secret to a happy life, Jesus said in John chapter 13, or a blessed life there. And so the Bible gives us uh, instructions on how to do that, how to be a blessing, to have a ministry that blesses uh, your soulmate, as uh, we are called. And so, yeah, when it's good, the marriage, there's nothing as sweet on the planet. And when it's bad, there's just nothing worse. And so the hard part of marriage, of course, is that becoming one thing, you know, uh, as the Bible says in uh, Genesis, this is now bone of my bones. Uh, This is what Adam says after he sees Eve, uh, who was fashioned out of his own rib. And that makes a lot of sense. The two shall become one. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And here it is, the problem. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, cleaving to his wife, and the two individuals will become one flesh. Now think about that. Two individuals, different backgrounds, different feelings, different hormones, uh, different likes and dislikes, different worldviews, must come together as one. It sounds like a recipe for disaster, and many times it is, uh, because we don't understand that we were designed and fashion to be different from one another in in a complementary way to supply everything the other one lacks to be strong where they're weak and um, where they're weak we are strong kind of thing but oftentimes the different ways that God created males and females is the source of contention because there's misunderstanding and all of that to which we will give our attention now to these words of wisdom and so it's really becoming uh, one from two is like kind of a spiritual three-legged race you see uh, Memorial Day picnic we we had that race and uh, there and it's almost comical it's uh, when the two are united but they're not in sync with one another not only is it just spastic and not pretty and comical in a sad kind of way somebody could get hurt i mean i mean a broken ankle or uh you know a sprain or a strain for sure and i think spiritually speaking uh when the two aren't becoming one uh in the sync that the, of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, uh, that uh, it, it, it is an ugly and dangerous uh, mess. And so, now here in chapter three, First Peter, God is uh, giving instructions for wives and husbands, and not for the reason you may think, uh, not for the sake of their own happiness, but for the sake of their Christian witness. Uh, more important to God than whether we are personally fulfilled, and though God always cares when we're hurting and have unfulfilled longings, more importantly is how the marriage reflects on him where Christ is named 
and the gospel is represented. And this is the context in which these words of wisdom to husbands and wives uh, appear here. And so in chapters 2 and 3, the big picture is this. God is not the only one watching you. (laughs) That others see how you live and form an opinion about the credibility of the gospel and the Lord we claim to represent. And so they hear the claims and they check out our lives and our marriages and they decide whether knowing Christ is a worthwhile uh, endeavor. So Peter has written, live such sweet, beautiful, morally excellent lives that though unbelievers try to discredit you in the gospel, they'll have nothing bad to say. They will see your good behavior even in the face of struggle and be drawn to Christ and be saved. And so whether that's in in civil matters or in the workplace or in the marriage, that there needs to be a respect of authority, the flow and the structure of how God created life to work in the environment of civil matters, in the environment of the workplace, and in the environment of the home. And so to our passage and to the second part of a message, uh, we were only managed to get to one or two verses last week, but uh, we'll review a little bit and then move through the passage verse by verse. Words of wisdom for wives and for husbands. Verse 1, 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, in the same way as the previous examples of everybody falling under where there's uh, God-given authority, we humble ourselves and we're compliant and cooperative. In the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them don't believe, so this is a general word to women and wives, uh, but even specifically uh, if you're married to an unbeliever, Uh, If any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over to Christ and the faith without so much words, but by the behavior of their wives when they see uh, the purity and reverence of your lives. So no need to dig deep here because I talked an hour about this passage. It's on uh, the app or the website, uh, but I will review for the sake of those who... um, I missed it last week. And so, yeah, uh, right here you see before you the problem, the exhortation, and the strategy. Just a quick review. The problem, of course, uh, Christianity was spreading like wildfire. First century uh, Roman Empire, husbands and wives were coming to faith, uh, and which is a good thing. But the bad thing was is that um, usually, in most cases, the woman was coming first. The wife was putting her faith in Christ and the husband uh, was an unbeliever. And so uh, she was well-intentioned and, and really uh, exuberant about her new faith, but she she wasn't going about uh, things biblically and she was making matters worse. And so sadly, in their newfound faith, the wives wanted to, com- she wanted to, to convert her husband. And, and that even sounds a little abrasive to our ears because you can't convert anybody. You can't strong, strong arm somebody into the faith. And this is uh, greater than just we're talking husbands and wives. We're talking about evangelism or any idea you wish to convey. You see, uh, you can lead a horse 
to water, but you can't make them drink. But these wives were going to die trying, uh, you know, and can you blame them? Can you blame them? Their eyes were open to the truth and they felt the love of God and they were set free from all that mythological Roman nonsense, dark superstitions, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, love of God. She had to be careful that she didn't go back to her unbelieving husband in the marriage and take charge and get out in front and try to course correct everything, to take the reins, you see. And uh, this brought about resentment and causing arguments and discord and uh, marriages were blowing up and guess who was getting the blame? Jesus and the gospel. So that was the problem. And so the exhortation was, wives, submit to your husbands. In other words, wives, even though he's not a believer, you still need to respect the way God has designed marriage to work. And, and, and even though he doesn't believe in Christ, you still need to show him respect and let him lead. Uh, you see. And so they had marriages where they loved each other. Roman uh, citizens were uh, civilized and, and uh, uh, there were big punishments for spousal abuse. And so uh, they had uh, secular uh, marriages much like ours in this world and then uh, the wife would get saved and think that well uh, all bets are off now because my husband is not enlightened and so I need to be taking the responsibility for the marriage and uh, he didn't take well to that and so uh, we talked about this this is uh, you know it's still it's still okay to let the husband lead um, and so uh, we talked last time what submission is not. It's not subjugation where the husband's the dictator or this autocrat uh, barking out commands to, and her some kind of subservient uh, non-entity. That's not at all, just, just the opposite. In fact, submission in the Bible in this regard is all about functionality. It's all about the practical working out of the marriage where somebody is leading and that two becomes one. So somebody's got the responsibility. You see, there's a mutual yielding within the marriage in a daily, on a daily basis. You know, so it wasn't about being less valuable as we talked about. Uh, Jesus was not a less valuable or a non-entity in the Godhead. He comes under God the Father and says, not my will, but your will. He said he never spoke a word that the Father uh, didn't give him. And he wasn't acting on his own. He was under. And so he retained his dignity and uh, importance and value. Uh, it was all a matter of function. And that's what we're talking about here. We talked about the swing dance where it can be a beautiful dance, but the the, the, the man is leading. In that swing dance, she is not leading. He leads. She follows the lead, and it's just this beautiful dance. If they're both trying to lead, it would be really not a pretty picture. And so we talked about that last time, didn't we? And so, yeah, uh, since God created and designed the woman with gifts 
to be his helpmate. And the word there means almost uh, rescue. Her, his, uh, she is the rescue and the help of God, and the stability and nurturer, creativity and all of the, her insights that she brings. God created her and designed her to bring that into the marriage. So, so uh, all of that needs to be given full expression and great weight so whatever submission means, it does not mean shh, only he's leading and only he's talking and only his insights matter. Of course not. She de- he designed her uh, to bring the marriage into its full, beautiful expression as God designed it to be. And so the strategy, moving on now, uh, to, is to win him, not so much with the talking at him, uh, but to show by her godly behavior. Uh, so, of course, it doesn't mean that we don't use words when we're trying to share the gospel, that, that, but only that once they get the idea and once they've said, no, I, okay, I get it, stop, that we honor that. And that really loving actions can carry great weight. And uh, your example can speak louder than words. And that's what he's saying. Wives, uh, uh, they will perceive you to be bickering and making them feel bad and nagging them. Uh, Stop with the words and just let the work that Christ is doing in your heart uh, impact them and open their eyes. Um, I've told you at other times about my dad uh, who became a Christian when he was 55, the first one in the family, and I was 18 years old. He loved to study the Bible at the kitchen table, and any time we were passing by, he tried to get us to listen to him, and it was awful. It was like a Charlie Brown cartoon where the uh, teacher is talking, and it's bah, 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 you know, it was just like, oh, I got stuck with dad for 40 minutes, you know, and it was terrible. Nothing my father ever said affected me, but one thing he did without knowing it rocked my world and I began to think that there was a God. Oh, I've told you this. We were driving in our neighborhood. We stopped at an intersection. There's a little kid on a bike waiting to cross and my dad lit up, looked at him, smiled and said, hey, hey, wave to the kid. And I said, what? Do you know him? No. Why are you, why are you so friendly? Why are you waving at the kid? Ah, it's a nice day. He's a cute kid on a bike. I'm waving to him. I feel good today. I'm like, whoa, what happened to my dad? I, I, I mean, who, who is he? And I started thinking, because my dad was just gruff. If he noticed the kid on a bike, he'd turn away. He, he might honk at him. He, he just had no, it wasn't my dad. And uh, I remember thinking, it's that Jesus. It's God. God is doing something there. He didn't try. He wasn't lecturing me. He was just shining. He didn't even know it. And that was impactful indeed. And this is what he's talking about. He points out uh, your purity and your reverence. Purity meaning moral virtue. That, you know, it's stunning when somebody is 
morally pure, that, you know, they would love the unlovable, that they would be always generous and never short, but patient and long-suffering and turning the other cheek when insulted. Go ahead and uh, not be uh, retaliating all the time like that. Never gossiping, never a negative word about people, no unwholesome language. That kind of behavior just kind of pounds away all the defenses and and you see, wow, uh, something uh, otherworldly, something otherworldliness here going on. Uh, And then the second thing he points out is her reverence, and that's toward her husband. So she has this Uh, Wayne Grudem, a great theologian, said she lives with a healthy apprehension of ever disappointing him. You see, that she really loves and respects the guy. And, you know, she's just always bragging about him, affirming him. You know, it's one thing to joke around about your husband being a doofus and everybody knows all the doofus ways about him. You know, I mean, I got a list of doofus things, you know. And, And it's okay for me to joke about that, for the husband to joke about it. But when we're in a crowd... The last thing a husband wants to hear is his wife listing all the ways he's a dork. You know, so, uh, you know what? Um, she brags about him, and she's always bringing out affirmations about him because from her heart, she sees the good. Even in an unbeliever, there's plenty of things to affirm that are good. And so... Uh, he, he, Peter's saying, here's a combination punch, dear Christian wives, that'll leave your husbands dazzled by a beauty that's more than skin deep. And speaking of that, verses 3 and 4. Your beauty shouldn't just come or merely come. In fact, the New King James has the idea there, merely, has the word merely there, because it belongs there, really, because that's the idea. Your beauty shouldn't come merely from the outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self and unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So let's talk about this. You see, the worldly ideas of beauty versus the biblical view, and it's something we all know, and by the way, this is for men and women, because God wants his people not to be duped and distracted and have the wrong idea about the things that matter aren't outward appearances so much as what's going on in the heart. That's what makes for a beautiful life. So all the bling on the outside, no matter who you are, uh, may be of great worth in the world's sight and gets you a a lot of applause and attention, uh, but not in the sight of God. He's looking somewhere else. Now, there's nothing wrong with maximizing your cute ability um, if you have some to start with. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I said that for me. Uh, but uh, that, that the, the truth of the matter, the biblical view is charm, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman, I would dare say, as, uh, or a man, who fears the Lord shall be praised. That's the idea here in Proverbs 31. So it's the beauty from within that counts with him, and it's where the Lord focuses on the real person.
person, you know. Can you even imagine if the blemishes within, every time we told a nasty lie, that it would manifest in a physical way, like you'd get a wart or something. You know, you... <laughs> We would take care of the inside a lot better than we do now. But as it is now, we can hide all that. And we can appear to be one way when, in fact, the truth is just the opposite. And so, uh, and that's where God is looking, of course. We learned that lesson with Samuel and uh, when he came to find David to anoint him as king. In 1 uh, Samuel 16, the Holy Spirit sent Samuel, the prophet, uh, to Jesse's house, and he said, he's got eight sons. I'm going to choose one of them to be Israel's next king. When you get to the house, I'll let you know which boy it is. So Samuel walks in the door, and he sees tall, good-looking Eliab. And he says, oh, that was easy, duh. There he is. He's all excited, thinking to himself. And the Holy Spirit says this, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or height. Don't be wowed by that, for I've rejected him. He's a wow to you guys, but he's a dud to me. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I just love that, you know? And so, yeah, Peter is not saying women and men can't take care of themselves or look nice or dress attractively. Uh, Within the scope of the culture of your day to fit in. He's not saying any of that. King Solomon was arrayed in stunning apparel, Jesus said. Uh, Rachel, married to Jacob, was, quote, lovely in form and beautiful in appearance. And I have verses about her clothes and her jewelry and her hair. So it's not about that. Uh, others were beautiful too and, and all blinged up, you know, dolled up. Uh, Esther, King David was a handsome man. Uh, Job's daughters. And, you know, there was plenty of jewelry and nice hairdos and fine clothes to go around back then with these people. Uh, but it was either an asset or a liability depending on the heart. Jezebel the famous femme fatale, (laughs) knew how to rock those eyelashes. And uh, she really did. And there's a verse about her eyelashes in the Bible. In fact, uh, Commander uh, Jehu came to depose her and her wicked uh, husband Ahab. And he rides into town. But it says, uh, then Jehu went to Jezreel. And when Jezebel... Uh, heard about it, she went and put her eye makeup on and arranged her hair and looked out the window waiting for him to arrive. And she was going to try to seduce him with her beauty. And so you see, you know, there's an outward beauty, but, uh, you know, like the proverb says so graphically, I've got two of them here for you. A beautiful woman who lacks discretion is like a gold ring in a pig's snout. Now, that's the Bible, and I didn't say that, okay? 
the Holy Spirit said that, and I felt sorry for the lady, so I said, I wrote this one, a handsome man who lacks characters like a fine gold coin in the bottom of the toilet bowl. <laughs> That's in First Polonians <laughs> chapter 5, verse 2. Some of the most beautiful people are inwardly the nastiest of all. Absalom, how would you like to have this said of you? The Bible speaking. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, he was flawless in every way. Sounds familiar, right, husband? (laughs) Some of you out there. But inside, you dig a little past all of that flawless beauty, you found a man filled with pride, rebellion, and murder. You see. So I think the takeaway here is really um, a practical thing for, wo- for women of that day and something new that I learned. Uh, in this regard, the Holy Spirit is protecting the, the honor of this Christian woman. Uh, she would, no doubt, they would be going all over the place uh, to Christian worship gatherings. There's always a home fellowship group. There was always collective uh, congregational worship. And she would want to go. And if she went out of the house without a husband, it would be questionable. They just didn't do it 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. And so what, what the practical side of this exhortation is if you leave the house without your husband, uh, unadorned, modestly, you know, uh, it will protect the honor, your honor, the honor, and the honor of the church and the gospel. Uh, you don't have to make yourself unattractive, uh, but just know what's truly important and don't fall for all of this worldly kind of thinking. Um, and then it does mention a beautiful, a gentle and quiet spirit. And, and you might be surprised to know that all he's asking her is to be Christ-like. And that would um, that would be relevant to the man, the men as well, to have a gentle and quiet spirit. You know why? Because our Lord Jesus Christ called Himself gentle. He said, "Come to me. I'm the second person of the Godhead." He didn't say that in the in the verse, but he is. And he said, "Come to me. Don't be intimidated. I yes, you're catching on. I'm the Messiah, but I'm gentle." The same word that he's telling the wife to be. Be gentle, like the Son of God. Not like, you know, I was going to say, not like a wuss, you know, but I can't, I'm not going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Not in a negative way. Oh, to be quiet and gentle, you know. No, like the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Be like him. And how about the quiet part? Oh, he was quiet too, in a sense of this. It says in a prophecy from Isaiah that Matthew quotes, the Messiah will not quarrel, he will not shout out, he will not be loud. Uh, No one will hear his voice in the streets. 
And then the gentleness of Bruce Reed. He's not going to break. He sees a reed over like, what, are you kidding me? And snap it. No, he heals the Bruce Reed. And then he sees a little smoking wick. And you think he's going to go, are you kidding me? No, he comes and he fans it to life because he's gentle and compassionate and quiet in spirit. doesn't come into the room and start barking orders. That's not the Lord, and it's not godly. Nor is it true masculinity, because true a- anything Jesus is is true masculinity. So he said, yes, there's a time for heated conversations, but I think you get the gist of it. And so last comments to the gals before he speaks to the guys, verses 5 and 6. For this, for, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. Uh, time for new role models, ladies. That's what he's saying. Uh, they were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. I said last week, uh, this the phrasing here doesn't say that she actually addressed him as master, but I think less brutal to our contemporary understanding Standing, considered her husband, considered herself a servant to her husband. You see, I think that is really the point of the passage. You are her daughters if you do what is right and don't give way to the fear of if I yield to him, oh no, it puts me in a vulnerable place or makes the marriage less than ideal if I yield uh, and let him lead. You don't give way to that fear because Sarah did it. So Commentators say that um, Peter has in mind several instances where her husband, who she just fully trusted as unto the Lord, led them uh, in weak ways and made uh, several mistakes. But he's saying it's still okay to trust that your imperfect husband um, to lead you by trusting in God, and God will always keep his eye on you in that wherever anybody, this is a wider point for everybody, whenever you trust God where there's a little bit of a cost, a little bit of something that intimidates you, it's against your natural inclination, but you know it's the right thing to do. It's the biblical thing to do. And you step out in faith and do it, God comes through every single time. That's the point of this passage, by the way. And he's probably thinking of the time in Genesis 12 when hubby (laughs) Abraham says, honey, there's no food here. Let's go to the bad guys. Maybe we'll get some food down there. No. So at the border crossing, Abraham says to his gorgeous wife, though she is noted for her beauty. She's stunning. And says at the border crossing, listen, if they know we're married, They'll just kill me to get to you. Yeah, and that's what they would do, too, 100%. Just kill the guy, and then we get her. You know, So just say, I'm your brother. you know, And, and that way, they'll be nice to me and, and give me stuff because they're going to want my blessing to give you to them. So she, she, as his servant, trusted God. And she wasn't going to take the reins. But it put them in a sticky situation. 
So sure enough, the officials in the palace saw her and said, you know, you might, we have a place for you in the harem. But before anything bad could happen, Pharaoh had his eye on her. And a second he did, he, he had God sent a disease on him and all of his staff and everyone in the household so that he connected the dots with, oh, this is associated with advancing towards Sarah. And then he finds out she belongs to another man. She's a wife. He calls Abraham in and says, what have you done? Look at all the damage. And he recognized that God was come stepping in to save Sarah from his clutches, you see. So uh, he sent him home with all the treasures that the Egyptians had given Abraham. So the point that Peter's going to make is, ladies, you know what? Maybe he will lead you in a way that uh, is, you know, less than ideal. But God, because you're submitting as unto God, now we're not talking about, you know, nightmare scenarios where somebody's a psychopath. And, you know, we're talking, generally speaking, that the man is a good man, a reasonable man, a man of faith. Uh, and, and even if he's not, uh, we're just we're talking about in general terms here that there's nothing to fear when we step out and obey the leading and the word of the Lord. Now, for husbands, and the women can applaud. <laughs> husbands, in the same way that everybody's got to humble themselves and everybody has to submit and have reverence for God, you submit to God. You humble your bad self in the same way. That's what that means. Be considerate as you live with your wives. It's a very deep sentence. It means to live with your wife with understanding and sensitivity. Understand her and treat them with respect. It really means honor. Honor them as the weaker partner. Very interesting. It's a rare word that means as the feminine one. That's what it says. As the delicate one, that you need to understand and be considerate of the feminine, delicate nature of your wife so that you understand that, which is very different from your masculine nature, so that you can serve her needs and bless her because she is a co-heir with you. The with you makes it joint heirs of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. A little bit of motivation there at that last part there. So let's talk about this. Very interesting to me uh, about these commands. Men and women have the, the same kinds of needs. You know, we are human beings uh, to be treated with love, kindness, appreciation, acceptance. It goes both ways. You can overlap these words, right? And, and so all Christians, listen, are called uh, to treat people, uh, all people, in all of these ways, loving and kindness and, and with appreciation and acceptance and mercy and graciously and all of that. But... The Bible makes an effort to address a husband and a wife with actually two or two, one or two of the attributes. Why? Why does it do that? Well, here's, uh, out of, here's what he's saying. 
out of the entire list of 100 possible Christian virtues, here's what's most important to your husband, oh wife. Here's what's on the top of your wife's wish list, oh husband. So whatever you do, wife, that submissive nature that makes him feel respected, and whatever you do, husband, you love and cherish her deeply, you honor her, you let her feel understood, and you treat her with consideration. So the consideration part is interesting because it comes from a word to consider, to think about. So to study her, it means to live with your wife with understanding of who she is, what makes her tick, so that you can better meet her needs and serve her in ways uh, that build her up. Because if you don't understand a person, you're not going to be very good at giving them what they need because you don't understand what they need. And, and you won't be very good at avoiding some of the landmines because you don't know uh, what uh, makes them feel insecure or where they're vulnerable because you didn't take the time. And so understanding somebody's a fruit of love. Husbands, love your wives. And a fruit of loving your wife is to spend a little time to understand her uh, so that you can serve her well. I was... Uh, walking through a restaurant once. It was a fancy restaurant, and uh, uh, there was a big party going on for an uh, older couple. They had been married uh, 65 years. And somehow, I got stuck at the table talking with somebody, and I asked the husband, I said, I don't know how that happens, by the way. <laughs> somehow. And I, and I said, what's the secret of 65? They looked so cute, and they were so they were glowing. You know, and he said, Well, it comes down to two words. Yes, dear. <laughs> <laughs> and then she, and everyone laughed like that. And then she grabbed my, I'll never forget this. She grabbed my arm and she said, Don't let him pull your leg. A good marriage is a lot of hard work. A lot of hard work. And here's the hard work let it begin making the time and effort to study. And, and I'll tell you what, this goes both ways because so, does God ever say that we shouldn't be considerate? To be, to be considerate is you've considered what makes them happy, what makes them sad, who they are. And so this will, go, this will be helpful for the wives as well as most of what he tells one uh, he could be telling. What's good for the goose is good for the gander is what I'm trying to say. So uh, be considerate, you know, know how she thinks, understand how she feels, what makes her feel loved and special and honored and what makes her anxious and all of this uh, is very, very important. And God created us differently and, the, and like I said in the beginning, the differences instead of coming to be appreciated and say, oh, man, I'm glad you're like that because I'm not like that. But I see how God uh, wants it to fit into our marriage, you see. Uh, instead, it causes us conflict. And when we don't understand something about the other one, uh, we just dismiss it as wrong. And you need to change that. But they're not going to change it necessarily. 
because that's how women are and that's how men are and that's why things never get better in the marriage because you're being who you are and you don't know how to not appreciate the differences here. She's delicate uh, and weaker. He's strong. Uh, where she's intuitive, he's logical. Where she's a nurturer, he's an exhorter. Where she has closet space, he has none. <laughs> I'll just throw that out to see if you're paying attention. And someone right over there didn't appreciate it. Fine, that's okay. What can I say? Um, sad, but true. Uh, if he's not studying her, and understanding the feminine one, uh, he's going to run into trouble. Now, thankfully, men, can I say this to you? Uh, it doesn't say that we have to understand all women, just the one we're married to, all right? So, which is hard enough. So, ladies, look, can I be honest? We love you. You bring such beauty to our lives. You're pretty. You smell good. Um, unlike guys. Uh, <laughs> you make our lives uh, beautiful. You're smart, creative, and wonderful, but we, we don't understand you at all. We really don't. And fine if you don't understand us, but, but I don't know. I don't think you understand yourselves, to tell you the truth. <laughs> um, <laughs> so God is saying, I, I made her, gentlemen. I will show you. I will show you things about her, okay? So there's a lot to learn. I mean, I've got a few things written down here. Hopefully, it's, some of them are funny and some of them are serious. But the husband's first rude awakening as he's considering who she is, uh, and this is like living with a woman 1A, um, don't try to fix her problem. Just sympathize with her in her pain. All right, so in other words, he comes home, she's upset, uh, something's not working, she's frustrated about something, and he says, don't worry, all we have to do is get a new one, and pulls out his phone and he starts ordering it on Amazon because he loves her, because that's what men do. We want to resolve the problem. We see you're upset, so don't worry, here I am, I'm going to save the day. And then he gets on the phone, he's ordering, and he's fixing the problem, and she says, you don't love me, or you, know, you don't care about me. And it's like, now he's offended, because it's like, what? I'm on Amazon right now serving you. You know, I don't want to be on Amazon right now, but I'm on Amazon for you. You know, he's dumbfounded. He feels insulted, misunderstood. And now, like he walked out of work into a booby trap, and now he's offended, and there they go. They're off, right? So it means, this is the answer. Whenever your wife is upset, gentlemen, you say something. First of all, you go over very simply, nice, and you open your arms, and you wrap her up, and you say... You must feel terrible. This is awful. I'm so sad that you're upset. And it, it's going to be okay. How about I take you out for dinner? You see? <laughs> Good. How'd I do? Uh, okay. That's the fruit of 38 years. Took me. <laughs> now, as you study women, you'll find, generally speaking, they tend to be the feminine one, as quoted there, a little bit more emotional uh, than we are. And so sometimes you will see them crying, but that doesn't mean anything is wrong. 
okay? And you don't need to push into that. I was teaching a class at Heald College in the East Bay. It's no longer there. Uh, and one day I'm lecturing, and there's a table of girls sitting there, tables of students, and, and one of the girls bursts into tears, sobbing tears, while I'm talking. I stop in the class, and, and I look over there, and all the girls are casually at the table, pulling out the tissues and handing it nonchalantly to her, like, here you go. And she gets up, and she's sobbing, and she goes out the door, sobbing. And I'm like, what happened? You know, was there a car accident she just found out about? Uh, did somebody die? You know, and it's like, oh, Mr. Ryman. Nothing happened. She needs to have a reason to be crying. <laughs> yeah, she does. <laughs> she does. I've cried like four times in my life, and every time I cried, it, it was like important. It, there was a reason to cry. So, so I, when you come home and your wife is crying, don't keep, keep saying, why are you crying? And, and they're, they're like, I don't know. It's everything. It's nothing. It's this. It's that. Oh, come on. Tell me. Tell me so I can fix it. You're crying for a reason. People don't cry for no reason. Yes, they do. <laughs> And they feel better after. They feel a lot better. So here's the answer. And it's practically the answer for everything. Open arms. Open arms. Come here, darling. Did I tell you how much I love you? I'm so appreciative. You work like a crazy woman around here. I just so, yeah, all of that. Ladies, are you feeling affirmed? <laughs> oh, my goodness. They don't need a reason for crying. How much time do we have? Can I keep going? They don't need a reason to cry and they don't need a reason to shop either. So the, the other day, my wife threw me into a panic attack. She asked me to go shopping with her. Here's what she said. She said, do you want to go to Home Goods with me? And I said, sure. What do we need? She says, nothing. So I started feeling anxious. And I pictured us wandering with a cart, going around, and the guy coming up and saying, can I help you find something? Yeah, nothing. <laughs> We're looking for nothing. Like, he could look at me like, I see this all the time. It happens all the time. And the guy just this white face with sweat on us, you know. And so, yeah, you know, uh, when men shop, ladies, just so you know, and I'm just making sweeping generalizations, uh, let's say I want a, a, some bike gear. So, like, me want new bike gear. So, <laughs> me go to store, me hunt it down. Me, me find it. Me, you know, me shoot it. And me take bike gear home with me. And I drag it home and me use it and me happy. None of, none of this, none of this. I'm nervous right now doing that. But this is, yeah, we laugh, but there are deep things like this that we don't understand that will never change until you understand it, consider it, and accommodate accordingly. So now, gentlemen, when she says, I want to just go look for nothing all day long, you go, let's do this. <laughs> we're going to find that nothing, and we're going to do it together. You know, see. And I'll tell you what, when you do do that, 
Oh my goodness, you, there's rewards. There's rewards for going to do something that you don't understand. And then you're like, oh, the whole evening, the dinner, afterwards, everything's blessed and you're happy. Why? Because you went out looking for nothing. <laughs> so in my, listen, when you know your husband and you know your wife, you're able to uh, shore up their insecurities, affirm their strengths, fulfill their longings, protect them where they're vulnerable, comfort them in their pain, bring healing where they're hurting, uh, help them to grow in Christian character. In my office, doing some marriage counseling, very moving thing happened uh, many times. Uh, but this in particular, husband was complaining about how insecure she is. She's always insecure. It's always like uh, no, she, she always has to be told, uh, affirmed and built up because she, it's like the next day it's all gone. And then she's crying, and she says something. She pauses, and she says, I don't know if I've ever told you this or not, but no one ever said to me, I love you. I never heard the words, I love you, except from you, pointed to her husband. And he started to cry, and then she's crying, and I'm crying, because you know what? You know, there was a knowledge about what went into her, so instead of being frustrated, how many times did I have to right? I brought, look at the ring. I married you, didn't I? You know. <laughs> instead, sorry. <laughs> instead of that, there's a, oh yeah, a terrible wound. Can you imagine a little girl never hearing from her dad or her mom that she's loved? Year after year after year after year. Now do you feel that? So now you can live with her in a considerate way or him. Now, chances are, if somebody's not meeting your expectations or not giving you what you need, uh, it's not because they are evil. It's because if you understood them, if they're reasonable and well-intentioned, and though you've made it clear over and over again, this is what I need or this is what bothers me, and they're still transgressing and they're well-intentioned, and they're reasonable, then you have to consider they're not doing this on purpose to hurt me. Now, because you have an understanding, you're able to give some space for that and some patience and some understanding. Uh, marital intimacy doesn't come easy for a woman. It's in the office. Uh, I'm talking about a specific issue, uh, a specific couple years and years ago and come to find out that something terribly traumatic happened, terribly violent, like in the newspaper, kind of violent. And he's frustrated and, and he's impatient and rude and blaming and strong-arming understand her, the struggle, 
and have some sympathy for the delicate nature of somebody who was brutalized in that area that you want to be so easy. You see, it works both ways. Your your husband's not a bad guy. He's broken. Your wife, she's not a, a bad woman. She's broken in some places. And as we do what the Bible says to do, uh, we can accommodate and bring healing and not stress, be patient and kind. And, and, and if you're slow to do that, uh, the Bible gives us one last thought, an admonition that says, uh, do you want God to put you on a timeout? Because he will. Because you cannot treat the delicate one and ride roughshod over her, though you have uh, the strength, you're stronger than her, and you are socially empowered more than her. But if you think you can uh, strong-arm her in any way, God will bench you and your whole life, and you will not go forward. You may think you're going forward, but you will never reach your full potential because God has benched you, put you aside until... Uh, he deals with it. And just so you know, ladies, it works both ways because in Matthew chapter 5, it says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember your brother and sister have something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. In other words, the way we treat people is enough to interrupt your relationship with God if you're hurting them. If one of my kids, when they were little, was beating on one of my other kids, his brother, I'd deal with that boy. You cannot beat up on one of my children. Yes, it's your brother, and you think you can do whatever you want to your brother. But more than being your brother or your sister, it's my child. That's how he feels. When one of the brothers is beating up on another brother and one of the sisters beating up. And by the way, the co-heirs with you is she's your sister in the Lord. The father, the same father. And he wants you to treat his daughter delicately, with sensitivity, with selfless love, like Christ loved the church. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your wonderful word. You stirred up a lot in us. Um, We pray that now the Holy Spirit would direct us, Lord, (laughs) that we would put these words to practice and see our marriages strengthened. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.